Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you'd open them up to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. And the title of this sermon is Practice. Well, growing up next to Michael Jordan, uh, one of my favorite basketball players was the answer, uh, Allen Iverson, who played for the Georgetown Hoyas in college and was drafted number one in 1996 by the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, He was an incredible, incredible basketball player. But unfortunately, a lot of people only know him for his infamous postseason rant. Uh, On May 7th, 2002, Iverson was doing an interview, and he was asked about this difficult relationship between he and his coach, Larry Brown. You see, Brown had let it slip to the media that Iverson had missed a practice. Well, when asked about it, Iverson went on a rant about the difference between practice and a game. In all, he said the word practice 22 times in about a minute and a half. We're talking about practice, not a game, not a game, practice. While this is oversimplifying Iverson's view, practice was seen as a completely separate issue than what happened in the real game. He didn't seem to think practice was a big deal. But for Coach Brown, practice defines who you are. In some ways, that's what we'll see in today's text. While not quite 22 times, John will mention practice six times in only a handful of verses. He believes that practice says a lot about who you are. So let's dive into the text. 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In classic John fashion, this section of text in many ways is repetitive. Uh, There are key truths that John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, doesn't want us to miss. And so he writes these verses in almost parallel. Uh, Verses 4 through 7 are a logical section. 
And then verses 8 through 10 almost mirror verses 4 through 7. In other words, verses 4 and verse 8 deal with sin and its origin. Verses 5 and 8b deal with the work and person of Christ. Verses 6 and 9 deal with sin and the Christian life. And then verses 7 and 10 deal with the theme of righteousness. So that's how we'll organize and tackle today's text. So point one, sin and its origins. Look with me again at verse 4. He starts with, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In such a helpful way, John begins this section by defining the nature of sin. It's a simple definition, isn't it? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In defining it this way, there's several truths that we're meant to learn. First, sin is serious. Uh, This is something that the Puritans understood, but unfortunately most of us don't. In fact, in 1669, a Puritan by the name of Ralph Vinning wrote an entire book titled The Sinfulness of Sin. It's amazing. John here is saying that sin isn't just a mistake. It isn't just a blunder or an oops. It's lawlessness. Every single act of sin is a rebellious breaking of God's law. In other words, you're an outlaw against God. Now, when you're, you're driving, it's possible to mess up and make a wrong turn, but to not break the law. What John's saying is, sin isn't just a mess up. It's lawlessness. But it's more than that. When we think of breaking the law, it can seem cold, sterile, even impersonal. Okay, I ran a red light, but I don't have any ill will towards the legislators. Not so with God's law. I want us to understand this as clear as we possibly can. To be lawless is to rebel not just against the law, but against the lawgiver. So many people are allergic to Christianity because of, quote, all the rules. But I want us to step back from that for just a moment. If, big if, if rules are arbitrary and given by someone who doesn't have your best interest in mind, that's one thing. But what if, what if the rules are given by someone who's all-seeing and all-knowing? What if the rules are given by someone who is 100% good and kind, benevolent, and loving? What if the rules are given by someone who cares about you and your well-being more than anyone in the universe? What if? I'll ask this question. Who made the law? God did, that's right. Every law, hear this loud and clear, every law is a reflection of the lawgiver. If you want nothing to do with the law, what do you really think about the lawgiver? This is an issue of trust and of God's character. You can't hate the law 
and love the lawgiver. Each time we sin and break God's law, we're essentially saying, I know what God believes is best for me and for my growth and my safety and my flourishing. I know that. But I know better than him. I'm going to do what I want to do. The essence of sin is rebellion against the lawgiver. Sin is lawlessness. So, that's the nature of sin. But John also wants to teach us about sin's origin. Look at the front of the, the first part of verse 8. He says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Again, this is a, a very serious view of sin. When we think of, of big sins, like murder or whatever you might put on that top shelf, we say things like, wow, that's satanic. And we rightly understand the darkness. But do we understand that even the smallest sins are devilish, according to 1 John? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. John doesn't take sin lightly, and we shouldn't either. So, the nature of sin is that it's lawlessness, and its origin is Satan himself. Why would John feel the need to spell this out? Well, many within the Gnostic camp, which we've learned are the false teachers who are teaching in the church even in John's day, these false teachers who were in and around the church were teaching that you could practice sin and still be a Christian. All you had to have was their secret knowledge. They were indifferent to sin. Unfortunately, that's not just a thing with the Gnostics in the past. That's somewhat alive and well today. Under the banner of grace, many people functionally believe that because Jesus graciously died for our sin, that we can sin all we want to. But Paul addresses this straightforwardly, doesn't he? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We'll get to this a bit later in our passage, but the reality is this. As God transforms us, we don't desire to sin in the way that our old nature did. Put in its most basic form, sin is rebellion against the law-giving God and siding with the law-breaking devil. Christians, real Christians, cannot be indifferent to sin. That's the problem. But I love that John doesn't just give us problems with no solutions. Point two, the person and work of Christ. The person and work of Christ. Look how John follows up his discussion of sin. Verse 5, you know that he, meaning Jesus, he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Isn't this awesome? In last week's text, we talked about Christ's second appearing, and 
the way that, that that spurs us on to holiness. And here, John's talking about Christ's first appearing. And what did he come to do? Take away sins. To take away sins. Through Jesus' sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross, he took away sins. Uh, understand this. Uh, every sin requires death as a penalty for sin. Adam and Eve in the garden, they sinned. God killed an animal, and he used that animal skin to physically cover their shame and their nakedness. The fig leaves that they tried to cover themselves with just wouldn't do. God needed them to understand that their sin led to death and required blood to cover them. Same thing in the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Animals were killed, sacrificed, so that sin would be covered up. But here's the deal. The, the Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't adequate. It only covered up sin. It didn't take it away. It's like spilling a gallon of milk on the floor and then just covering it up with a rug. It's covered... But that rotting milk is still there. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. <clears throat> for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you see that? Jesus' atoning work on the cross did more than just cover up our sins. He took away our sins. He absorbed the full and just wrath of God on our behalf. And he took sin away by paying the just penalty for it. That is why Jesus appeared to take away our sins. And how was he able to do that? Look at what John says next. And in him, there is no sin. In him, meaning Jesus, there is no sin. If Jesus had sin in him, he couldn't have died as our perfect sacrifice. Being sinless is actually what qualified him to die to take away our sins. This is a major theme throughout the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We read this earlier. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If Jesus wasn't completely righteous, he couldn't have transferred that righteousness to us. The author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 4.15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He goes on to say in Hebrews 7.25-27, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for his, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Similarly, Peter says this, 1 Peter 2, 22-24, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus being sinless is vital to him being able to be our perfect sacrifice, who died in our place to take away our sins. So, because of who Christ is, no sin is in him. Because of who Christ is, he's able to take away our sins. But John says more in the second part of verse 8, doesn't he? He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's awesome. Can you, can you hear the triumph in John's voice there? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Sin. Do we think of Jesus this way? As a warrior who invaded enemy territory and took Satan down fully and completely. Yes, the devil is still alive and causing havoc in this world. He's still waging battles. But the war is over, decisively. Jesus' work on the cross was the kill shot that victoriously destroyed the devil. More on this later. But do you see that the person and work of Christ is... The problem to the solution, or the solution to the problem of sin. The solution isn't our good works. The solution is not working enough hours at the soup kitchen, or going to church enough, or being raised in a Christian family. Those aren't bad things. They're just not the solution to sin. The only solution is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we keep sinning, we're working against what Jesus came to destroy. Picture the devil making black X's on a big white wall. Jesus coming behind him, erasing those black X's. And then a person coming behind Jesus, making more black X's. That's evidence of whose team you're on. If you make a practice of sinning, you're working against Christ. Let's keep following John's outline for us. Point three, sin and the Christian life. Sin and the Christian life. So we've defined sin. We've seen its origin. We've seen the solution to sin. But how does sin and the Christian life intersect? Look first at verse six. No one 
who abides in him, meaning Jesus, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, is John contradicting himself here? Remember what he said in chapter 1, verse 8? He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, any Christian who claims to be without sin is deceived and a liar. But here, some people see John saying that Christians just don't sin anymore. But what I want us to see is that this isn't a contradiction at all. John and the other biblical writers aren't dumb. It's not like he was writing along and said something and then later on in his letter forgot what he wrote. I've intentionally skated over the word practice each time that it's been mentioned in this text so that we can explicitly address it here. Each time you see the word practice, as well as this word here translated, keeps on sinning. Each time, they're grammatically present active verbs. What does that mean? It means continual action. Yes, Christians can and do sin. 1 John 1.8, he's made that clear. But true Christians don't make a practice of sinning. They don't keep on sinning. It isn't what characterizes them. Does it mean that if you're a Christian and you've wrestled with the same sin in your whole life, does it mean that you're not a Christian? Not exactly. But is that particular sin the absolute norm for you? Does it characterize you? Sin is out of character for the true Christian. That's what he's getting at. Think of it this way. Picture an all-pro NFL lineman. Does that lineman ever miss blocks? Yes. Yes, they do. They sometimes get flagged for holding, too. But it's not what characterizes them. It's not the norm. It's the exception and not the rule. That's what the present active tense that John uses here is getting at. If you claim to be a Christian and you practice sin, you keep on sinning, he's saying you're not actually a Christian. You haven't truly seen or known Jesus. You're not an all-pro lineman if you miss blocks on every play and you're comfortable with it. And look at the imagery that John starts with here. Verse 6, no one who abides in him. No one who abides in him. Remember, to abide in Christ is to be plugged into him, to have his life flowing through you. We've established that Jesus was perfect, sinless in every way. So, to be plugged into him, to have him flowing through you, is incompatible with continual sin. Picture a garden hose that somehow got red food coloring in it, but it's hooked up to a water source that's completely pure. As that hose abides in that water source, 
as pure water continues to run through it, what begins to happen? The pure water washes out the food coloring. More and more, the output becomes clean. Why? Because the hose is great? No, because the source of the water is perfect. That's abiding in Christ. And remember last week, when, when Jesus comes again, we'll see him and be like him. No more food coloring come up, coming out of our hose at that point. That's, that's the direction that we're constantly moving toward as Christians. Not sinless, but striving towards that day. On the contrary, if, if the constant output of your life is sin, John's saying you don't actually know Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I implore you to consider this warning. John and I pray that this is convicting to your soul. Turn from sin. Trust in Christ as your only hope of rescue. Only he can take away sin. Only Christ can help you in your struggle with sin. So abide in him. Cling to him. Trust in him. To follow up this thought, look what John says in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Same exact idea, but said in a different way, with some more proofs of the truth. He says, no one born of God. Well, what does it mean to be born of God? We talked about this before. To be born of God means to be regenerated. The Spirit has made you born again. A new man, a new woman, a new creation, as we read earlier. Remember the discussion of John chapter 3 between Nicodemus and Jesus. No one who is born of God has a life defined by regular sin. Why? Why does he say that? He says, for God's seed abides in him. God's seed abides in him. What does that mean? Well, there's a couple of options. Seed could mean the Holy Spirit. As in, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, working to produce holiness and, bringing, and bridling your sin, even when you try to steer the other way. Seed could mean the Holy Spirit. Seed could mean God's word or the gospel message. It could also mean the new nature that's in us as a result of the Holy Spirit and God's word. I don't think John would quibble with that. His point is the same regardless. If God's word, his spirit, and his nature are in us, we don't persist in sin because of whose child we are. That's not God's, yeah, that's not God's character to be sinful. And so if he lives in us, that's not what happens. In other words, the, the two just don't go together. So, we've seen sin defined in its origin. We've seen the victorious solution to sin in the person and work of Christ. We've seen that sin is incompatible with the true child of God. Now, let's see the other side of the coin. If, 
if it's true that sin is incompatible with the Christian life, what's the alternative? Point four, righteousness. Righteousness. The Christian life, and I hope you, you hear this, the Christian life is about much more than just avoiding sin. Sorry for all the sports analogies today, but we're about more than just not getting sacked. We want to move the ball down the field positively. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. This is the other side of the coin in verse 8, right? Whoever practices sinning is of the devil. But whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus is righteous. What, what John's saying here is that you do who you are. You do who you are. Your deeds reveal what's true of you at the heart level. I know I've said this over and over and over again, but I need to at least one more time. John, hear this loud and clear, John isn't saying that your righteous deeds make you righteous. It's only the blood of Jesus shed for you and his righteousness that's credited to you that makes you declared righteous. And, and if you truly are declared righteous, that will come out in your deeds. That's John's point. You do who you are. You do what you are. And if, if you're a Christian, a little Christ, you will practice righteousness, obeying God's commands. Look how starkly John concludes this section to make his point. Verse 10, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Uh, Ligon Duncan points out here that if it's true that you do who you are, verse 10 takes a step forward to say you do whose you are. That's right. And there's no gray area or halfway point here, is there? There's only two categories. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. And the evidence of righteousness or lack thereof in your life is a clear paternity test. If, if you're a bona fide child of God, you will practice righteousness. You'll obey God's good and gracious and generous commands. And one of those commands is to love your brothers and sisters in the church. That's how John finishes. With a, a very specific test for you to know whether you practice righteousness. If you don't love the other children of God, you can't claim to practice righteousness or to be a true child of God. So... Those are the truths that John wants to teach us this morning. But before we close, I want to give a couple of application points that I'm borrowing from Kevin DeYoung. Number one, number one, 
This text is a correction to any of us who believe in what's called cheap grace. Or the idea that, that Jesus died for us and we can just go on, go on sinning. If that's you today, let God's word correct your thinking. Jesus' salvation was and is free. But it was costly. It cost the blood of our sinless Savior. Far be it from us to despise this costly free gift by being comfortable with the same sin that he came to destroy. Cheap grace is grace misunderstood. So number one, this text is a correction. Number two, this text is a warning to those of you who call yourself Christians and keep on sinning. John and I hope to wake you up this morning. You're in a burning house, and you're calling yourself safe. If sin characterizes you, you're not a Christian, regardless of how often you come to church or even serve at church. Sin is out of character for the true Christian. So repent and allow Jesus to take away your sins. So this this text... It's a warning. Third, and finally, this text is full of hope. This text is full of hope. If you're a true child of God, Jesus has taken away your sins, and he's ultimately destroyed the works of the devil. We don't live in a dualistic world where the forces of God and the forces of evil are equal. No. Jesus, in his work on the cross for you, Christian, has won the war. I hope you see that. We, as Christians, we're not helpless or hopeless in our pursuit of holiness. Why? Because of Christ's first appearing. On the contrary, we're full of hope. And we pursue holiness because we look forward to his second appearing. And so... My heartfelt prayer today is that this text does those three things simultaneously. I I pray that it'll be a correction. I pray that it'll be a warning. And I pray that it'll be full of hope. So with that, let's pray.